Welcome to the Baby Tribe. I'm Katie Mugan from NursingMama.ie, a paediatric and public health nurse and a lactation consultant with over 20 years experience. And I'm Afif Al-Kafash, a neonatologist and paediatrician and a lactation consultant with over 20 years experience in newborn care. And together, we are your hosts. Welcome back to this week's episode, and I'm so excited for our special guest episode with Orla Walsh and Afif, and she's going to be talking all about antenatal nutrition and supplements, postnatal nutrition and supplements, and even infant nutrition in the first year of life. Take it away, Afif. I am delighted to have Orla Walsh with us in the studio today. Orla is a registered dietitian and a mum of two kids, soon to be three. After working as a dietitian in hospitals in the UK and Ireland, Orla founded Orla Walsh Nutrition Own Your Health in about 2011. In that time, the Own Clinic has become renowned as one of Ireland's leading and most trusted dietetic practices. I'm sure you've heard Orla on the airwaves and also read her articles in print. She works in a range of areas, including media, and she is a regular contributor to the Irish Independent since 2016. I'm really excited to start chatting with Orla about all things antenatal and postnatal nutrition for mums and for babies. Orla, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me on. I am really excited to chat to you about this. I think this is a topic that a lot of mums and parents would be really eager to listen to because it's the health and well-being of mums while they are pregnant and after they have their baby. And we're also hopefully going to touch on infant nutrition and supplements over the first year of age. Yeah, brilliant. I suppose when you talk about nutritional needs during pregnancy, you kind of have to start before someone's pregnant because Folic acid um, is a supplement that anyone really who could conceive a baby should be taking. One in two pregnancies aren't planned. Um, and by the time you find out you're pregnant, that neural tube has already closed. So um, it, it's incredibly important because folic acid um, reduces the risk of neural tube defects. So it's something that we have to take all the time. And ideally you'd be taking it for three months prior to getting pregnant because that's how long 400 micrograms takes to kind of bring you up to blood levels that are required. Now, if someone came to me and said, I haven't been taking the supplement, but we're hoping to start trying from next month, then usually what we do is 800 micrograms for four weeks prior um, just to get up to those recommended levels and then bring it back down to 400 for the entirety of the pregnancy, not just for the first trimester. Folic acid is really important because of the risk of neural tube defects. So just for our listeners, we're talking about things like spina bifida, which is um, a condition that can affect the lower part of the spine, sometimes the higher part, but generally the lower part of the spine where it does not form properly and can have an opening to the outside at the bottom of the back. Babies can have issues with movements of their limbs. They can have issues with bladder and bowel control, and they can also be some cognitive issues down the line as well. So it's very important to take folic acid. One thing I wanted to also touch on, and we've been getting a lot of questions coming from our listeners about this, is the association between folic acid and tongue tie. Have you kind of heard about that? And have you heard it being mentioned? I have heard it being mentioned, but this is very much your area. So I'm conscious. I'm like, I'm going to stay on my side of the track and let you as a lactation consultant, because um, I know you have tested all my babies for a tongue tie. And it's one thing that a lot of moms, you know, who really want to breastfeed are really nervous about. Yeah. And I actually spent a good bit of time researching this because when I first heard about it being mentioned, 
I wasn't sure about the association. So just to orient our listeners, there is a theoretical concern that taking folic acid may increase the risk of having tongue tie. And certainly there has been a couple of studies that have demonstrated an association between folic acid intake and a higher chance of having tongue tie. But having looked at the data, I'm not actually convinced that it's a true cause and effect relationship. The awareness or the diagnosis of tongue tie has been increasing recently. I think that coincides as well with the awareness that mothers should be taking folic acid. And I think it's an association at the moment rather than cause and effect. We will be having an episode dedicated to talking about tongue tie and we will touch on this again. But what I would say now is that mothers should always take folic acid and follow the recommendations for folic acid intake and supplementation. You know, when you're planning on having a baby and throughout your pregnancy, because the risk of neural tube defects is real. And the relationship between folic acid intake and tongue tie is merely in association, meaning that they tend to come together for various reasons. I think it's an increased diagnosis of tongue tie recently and an increased awareness that folic acid needs to be taken. And I think that's why they are seen to happen together. Yeah. And I think the association is important to understand. So if it's a hot day, um, you're more likely to have a 99 ice cream and you're also more likely to get sunburned. It doesn't mean that a 99 ice cream has anything to do with sunburn. It's just that they happen on sunny days. Yes. So it's it's knowing that. And I think that's important for a lot of people because they can see headlines and start to freak out. And if someone's had a bad experience of tongue tie before, you can understand why they, they would be like, I don't want this again. When you look at risk reward, the most important thing is taking folic acid to reduce the risk of neural tube defects, but also other things like there has been associations with other things like, you know, uh, miscarriage as well. So it is something that we all need to be taking um, a lot of the time. And it is in a lot of multivitamins. But again, if you're someone who could fall pregnant, I often make, not make, suggest to women to take a multivitamin that's actually designed for pregnancy. Because again, if one in two pregnancies aren't planned and you're taking a multivitamin that isn't suitable for pregnancy, that can uh, be an issue. So for example, a normal multivitamin will have um, vitamin A in it. And pregnancy nutrition uh, supplements would have a different sort of vitamin A or just a lot less. It's in the first trimester that having too much vitamin A is a problem. So again, I often say to women, listen, if you're taking multivitamin, is, if there's any chance you could get pregnant, then I, I would take a multivitamin designed for pregnancy. And that can be even if you don't have a boyfriend or anything else, because, you know, you could still, <laughs> you could still fall pregnant with something unplanned. Great. And just on that note with the multivitamins, what other micronutrients or should pregnant women or women planning on getting pregnant consider taking? Well, omega-3 is really important um, and our, our needs are incredibly important when pregnant and when breastfeeding afterwards. And so I would encourage people to take an omega-3, especially if they're not eating enough fish, which most people aren't. So if you're eating oily fish once or twice a week, then maybe you don't need omega-3. But if you're not, you probably do. Um, and considering the average intake of fish in Ireland is equivalent to one bite of fish a week, um, you know, we, we just know the fish intake is below par. So an omega-3 supplement's a good idea. But one nutrient that's coming into light is choline. And it's not in a lot of prenatal um, supplements. And choline is incredibly important. It works along folic, uh, folic acid. 
and it has some other benefits within the body um, too. And our needs increase during pregnancy. And again, when breastfeeding and choline is found in, well, it's found in animal produce like milk and egg and meat. And so if people are following a more plant-based diet, they should really look at supplementing it. And there is some choline in the likes of broccoli and cauliflower and cabbage, but it can because your needs are so high, you might not be meeting them. So that's a nutrient that's going to start being added to prenatals soon enough because the evidence is there. Can I ask you, Orla, why is it important to take omega-3 and choline? What are their benefits? Choline has shown to work alongside folic acid um, and, and to help each other. They're kind of, um, they're like two best pals in the body working together to have um, similar sort of, to do similar sort of things. Omega-3 is really important because um, it's important for the brain and it's important for eyeballs. And a lot of supplements targeted at women who are pregnant or want to be pregnant contain DHA. So with omega-3, there's three different types. ALA, which is the one found in plants such as chia seed and flax seed and rapeseed oil, and then EPA and DHA, which are the oily fish ones. Um, and they're very different. So they look different under a microscope and they look different when they're in the body and they act differently in the body. And DHA, when you take it, is only DHA, but EPA can turn into DHA. So often the supplements encourage people to just take DHA. DHA, but I would actually encourage people to take an omega-3 with EPA and DHA because, you know, the EPA can become DHA if if needed. That is a good idea. In terms of uh, fish oil supplements, if you get fishy burps or if you have sickness in early pregnancy, the idea of taking a fish oil, even when you open the capsule, you're like, oh dear God, no. So I would encourage people to keep them in the freezer and take them frozen to um, reduce reduce the side effects from it. And also if you are following an exclusively plant-based diet, so if you might consider yourself a vegan, you can get uh, omega-3, the EPA and DHA from an algae supplement. That's great. Fantastic advice. What about iron and calcium? Should mums be supplementing that or can they get enough of that in their diet? So we know that iron absorption from the gut doubles in pregnancy because that's how much it's needed. That said, we know that a lot of people aren't taking in enough calcium and calcium is extremely absorbable. So we absorb a lot of the calcium that might be found just say in our yogurt or in our milk. And I'm talking about cow's milk. It's not as absorbable when it comes from plants. So people might bring up spinach having calcium, but really if you can't access it, if our body can't access it, it doesn't matter if it contains it. It's like saying my uncle's rich. He has loads of money in the bank. Well, I can't access his money. So therefore <laughs> I'm not rich. So it's a bit like that. When it comes to fortified milk alternatives, um, there was an interesting study done on the likes of soy milk. So it's fortified often, unless it's organic. Organic tend to not be fortified. But the non-organic versions contain calcium and contain calcium similar or comparable to cow's milk. However, it contains, it forms a bit of a sludge at the bottom of the carton. And if you don't shake the carton, what you'll get in terms of calcium in the glass will be about a third of what you'll get um, in cow's milk. And then even if you shake the carton, the sludge is hard to mix through the milk. So what happens is you even with a decent shake, around 60% of the calcium, you know, that uh, will end, enter the glass. So cow's milk still will have more calcium per glass than the milk alternatives, even if they're fortified to be the exact same. Okay, that's actually a very, very good point. And I'm sure a lot of 
people don't realize that they have to shake them well to kind of spread the calcium out evenly throughout the cup. Shake them well and then consume more than you would with milk. Okay. And while we're on the topic of calcium, vitamin D. Vitamin D helps calcium do its thing, but magnesium helps vitamin D do its thing. So magnesium is often in multivitamin supplements, so you might not need extra. Sometimes when women are getting leg cramps in pregnancy, they are advised magnesium. Some of the magnesium supplements will leave you running to the loo, so be careful with them because they have a laxative effect. But something like a magnesium citrate or magnesium glyconate can be helpful. A magnesium glyconate might even help with sleep um, if taken later at night. Um, so it's worth trying. Or another thing is if you get that weird eye twitch. Um, again, I wouldn't say the research is solid on it, but if you're getting a weird eye twitch, twitch or waking up in the middle of the night with horrible leg cramps, which happened to me on both pregnancies uh, previously, um, it is worth trialing a magnesium supplement. But magnesium helps vitamin D do its thing. Vitamin D helps calcium. But vitamin D does more than that. Um, they all do. They all have multiple roles in the body. But vitamin D is incredibly important for lots of things like um, immune function. And we know that our immune system, you're just more likely to pick up stuff when pregnant. So I would suggest a vitamin D supplement. The guidance has changed for women. It's now 15 micrograms for the time you're pregnant, which is nearly a year. Generally speaking, um, the, the guidance were lower and they were saying from October to March. But because we know the importance of vitamin D and its associations with so many different things, including preeclampsia and gestational diabetes and all sorts, it is a good idea to take 15 micrograms, which is 600 international units every day for the pregnancy. If you're suffering really bad with nausea, tablets can be so hard to take. And I've been there and been unable to take them. So I found the vitamin D sprays dead handy and you can get mint ones. So if you're really sick and you know, a, a spray of mint into your mouth isn't the worst thing. Um, so I, I would suggest a spray if you're really suffering. That's great, actually. Again, fantastic advice for specific situations there for vitamin D intake. Finally, I wanted to ask you about iodine. Iodine has come to the forefront of our attention in recent years, simply because there's studies from around the world that we're not taking in enough as 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 women. So even an Irish study around one in two Irish women aren't taking in enough iodine. If you're having three portions of dairy a day and eat fish, your iodine intake is probably good. Um, iodine is abundant in seaweed and we do grow um, and harvest seaweed in Ireland, but it doesn't mean that people necessarily have that much. And because you're avoiding sushi really in pregnancy, you won't be necessarily having um, as much sushi as before, even though you can adapt your sushi choice. But I suppose the need for it is it's multiple. It, it's involved in so many different things. So thyroid function and thyroid production. So thyroid is that butterfly gland in your neck responsible for your metabolism. And when Homer Simpson was saying it's glandular, it's glandular, that's probably what he meant. Um, so iodine uh, intake is um, needs to be increased during pregnancy to meet these increased production of thyroid hormone, which is created from the iodine. And it's really important for metabolism as well as cognitive function of the baby. And again, there's associations with even things like IQ in the baby um, when born. So we know women aren't getting enough in Ireland. We know they're not getting enough in America too. Um, so up to 44% of people in the third trimester are not getting uh, meeting their iodine requirements. It is generally in the prenatal vitamins. That said, um, if someone is following 
a vegan diet or an exclusively plant-based diet and just say not enjoying sushi regularly, they they might need to consider supplementing it. Um, <clears throat> and get a reputable brand because some of the brands, they might, for example, have a kelp supplement and it contains a hell of a lot more iodine than you think, but it will be in your multi-mineral, multi-mineral multivitamin. Unfortunately, the plant-based milks were going, to, there was this big hoopla that they were going to add iodine But then I had a recent look and a lot of the milk alternatives are not actually adding iodine to their cartons. And it's a pity because iodine is found in milk and it's a missing ingredient to the milk alternatives. I think the only one I can find was in a pea milk. Um, So again, your iodine intake might not be up to scratch and it will affect you and your baby. Great. And this is a really great segue into briefly talking about women that have specific diets, such as a vegan diet, is there any extra precautions that they need to take? Yeah, absolutely. So a prenatal is important and an omega-3 supplement from algae is important. Interesting enough, our protein requirements do increase when pregnant. Um, You can, of course, meet your protein requirements if vegan, but it takes education. And even the most educated vegans that come in are always surprised when when I show them, okay, you might need 20 grams of protein per meal, just say. And we, I, I show them like how many, how much chickpeas that would actually entail, entail. And there, you know, there's often surprise. So I think there is an education piece there. It, your protein needs can be met, but they do increase when pregnant and they increase throughout the pregnancy because we get heavier. So protein requirements are per kilogram. You could gain 17 kilograms in the entire pregnancy. So therefore your protein requirements have to be adjusted as you go along. So that is something um, for vegans to be aware of. Do take a B12 supplement. That's incredibly important. And B12 is one of those ones where plenty of women might need to supplement that. So if they're taking metformin because they had type 2 diabetes or PCOS or gestational diabetes, if they're taking PPIs because of reflux, they might need to take B12. Um, similarly, actually, when we're on that topic, if you're taking antacids, you might need more iron as well during pregnancy. So again, when it comes to a vegan diet, all a lot of the nutrients are available within plant foods. It's just you can't access them as well. So generally, the more you process or cook your foods, the more you'll access them. But you certainly have to um, supplement uh, the omega-3, the B12, vitamin D and possibly iodine. Yeah, amazing. I see here that, you know, by the by the third trimester, mums need an additional 500 calories a day almost just to kind of maintain um, their basal metabolic rate requirements. Yeah. And although our metabolic rate can increase by like 15%, uh, we need more calories, but because we meet, need more nutrients, we actually, what it translates to isn't, oh, you can have the cake at the end of the day, is we actually need to eat more carefully because our nutrient requirements increase more than our calorie requirements do. Um, so it's just to be mindful of that fact. The other thing is that Yes, our metabolic rate will increase 15%, but the biggest variability is how much you move. And we know that when you, the more pregnant you get, the more you want to move will go down um, and, and even your pace and stuff will go down as well. So um, just note that, um, you know, when it comes to how much extra you need to eat, it can mean not very much, especially when movement has decreased a lot. Before we chat about things to consider after the baby's delivered in terms of diet, can we briefly mention food safety 
and things that moms should watch out for during their pregnancy. So during your pregnancy, really buckle it down to food safety. I'm glad you said those two words because it really boils down to that and more so than anything else. It's it's simple things like what all this stuff that COVID taught us to be even more vigilant about uh, washing our hands before we eat, eating things by use by date. You don't have to throw things out if it's gone past their best before. It just means it's not as tasty or the texture has changed, but you have to throw things out by their use by. You have to cook things thoroughly and just be really careful with that. So if you liked rare meat before, um, unfortunately, you have to hold off during pregnancy. Same with eggs, that they have to be hard boiled, um, which for me doesn't taste the same. And it's the one thing that really bothers me. Um, but there's little bits. So you can't have shark, marlin or swordfish. And I used to laugh at that one all the time until I ate swordfish for like five days in a row and then came back home from Italy and found out I was pregnant. I was like the only time in my life I've eaten those but uh, those fish is important. When it comes to tuna, you can have tuna, uh, tin tuna, like two to four times a week, but no more than that. And um, do try and eat oily fish once a week. And then in terms of shellfish and white fish, you can have that as much as you want. The guidelines, the old fashioned guidelines were that you couldn't. You have to be careful with shellfish because of food poisoning risk. But like things have changed, you know, from those guidelines. Yeah, and I suppose the thing to mention about sharks, swordfish and marlin is that they sit on top of the fish food chain and they end up consuming a lot of fish and they build up a lot of mercury level in their meats. And yeah. that's why the moms should should avoid those yeah. during pregnancy. But I should have avoided the pina colada in Italy too, but sure, you find out after um, these events. The other thing to note um, is cod liver oil. So don't take cod liver oil supplements for two reasons, because of the intake of toxins and also uh, because of the vitamin e A content. So don't confuse cod liver oil with omega-3. They're very different. Yeah. And can we mention vitamin A specifically? Because I've read a lot about how moms should be careful when they are pregnant about taking vitamin A. I know there's a pre-vitamin A and a pro-vitamin A and there's a difference. My understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that the pro-vitamin A, which is the precursor to vitamin A, that is usually present in vegetables such as carrots, yeah. are okay to take because the body will only convert that to vitamin A according to how much the body needs. And exactly. you won't, you're not going to overdo it on that. But taking the pre-vitamin A, which is the kind of fully formed vitamin A as supplements or in other foods, you need to kind of be mindful of that. Yeah. And um, especially in the first trimester and it sneaks into a lot of things. So you like even I was sent um, a vitamin D supplement the other day and it had um, a high dose of vitamin A in it as well. So um, you have to just be careful that when you're taking a supplement, it's not creeping in alongside it. Like you don't have to be excessive in it, but just don't supplement it, I think. And certainly don't fear orange and yellow vegetables because they're high in um, vitamin E. That's that's completely different and they're very good for you. Fantastic. Now, after your baby comes, what things should you be watching out for in terms of diet and supplements? Um, well, continue to take your prenatal or get one that's specifically designed for postpartum period. Most people don't. And I have well, I put my hand up and say that I completely forgot to last time and I suffered the consequences. So it's incredibly important what you've done is you've created life with your body and you may or may not be 
breastfeeding as well. And all of those things have additional needs. And again, the taking that supplement will really help re-nourish yourself and keep you nourished. Um, and, and it's hard. And especially if it's maybe, well, I say especially if it's the first, but maybe if you've loads of kids at home as well, it can be hard to eat as well as you want to, especially initially when you're you could be off feeding every two hours and you'd just be wrecked. And and you're also trying to get over pregnancy for 40 weeks and perhaps a um, a delivery that wasn't necessarily that pleasant. You know, it, it, there's a lot of nourishment and wound healing that needs to occur. So I would certainly keep taking that multivitamin, um, generally speaking, for at least three to six months. But I suppose if you're breastfeeding, you might want to take it for a little bit longer just to help you meet your needs. It's kind of like a safety blanket as such, but keep going with it because again, lots of women could um, be iron deficiency post-pregnancy. Generally speaking, the blood loss in delivery is twice that with cesarean compared to what we call it bog standard vaginal delivery. So you can lose more blood and therefore lose more iron. So you're just more at risk of iron deficiency. But because some some studies suggest that 40% of pregnant women are iron deficient when pregnant. Um, you can carry that over into the postpartum period. And considering that worsens energy and fatigue, you don't need anything worsening that. So I would continue to take it. Um, one thing, a bit of advice I would suggest is keep your multivitamin um, where you do your first pee in the morning. So everyone gets up and pees first thing. And if you take it on empty, you'll... So just with water and 30 to 60 minutes before breakfast to your coffee, you'll absorb a lot more. So um, especially the iron and that's crucial. That's really important. That's great. And I suppose just to kind of put it in context, vitamin D supplementation is really important to keep taking after delivery because all the surveys of the Irish population really show that the average intake of vitamin D is well below recommended levels. And I yeah. believe I heard a figure that up to 80% of people in Ireland are actually deficient in vitamin D? Up to nine, uh, up to kind of 90% of people aren't taking a vitamin D supplement. We know we need to, but we're not doing it. So it's to keep up with that. And especially um, if, if you're breastfeeding as well, because again, you will still need to supplement your baby with vitamin D. And having used the drops and all the sorts in the past, I actually find the spray much easier for babies because once they open their mouth, you can just spray it in. But I find those those oils and those drops really hard because it just seems to seep out the side of their face the whole time. So it's impossible to get the vitamin D into them and keep it in. Um, but vitamin D supplement supplementation is incredibly important for mum and for baby. Um, if you're exclusively formula feeding, it just depends on how much formula you're using. So if you're using more than kind of 10 ounces of formula, you uh, don't need to supplement the baby with vitamin D. But if you're using less than 10 ounces, you do. Great. And that is a great segue into nutrition and supplementation for babies. So we've mentioned vitamin D briefly. And just to reiterate, recently formulas now have enough vitamin D in them to meet the baby's daily needs, provided the baby's taken more than 300 mils of formula in a day, which is equivalent to 10 ounces, as you said. But if the baby is breastfed or if the baby is taken less than those 10 ounces a day, then you need to supplement the baby with around 400 international units of vitamin D yeah. daily. And that's important because often we talk about, oh, the baby's breastfed or it's formula fed, but lots of women do both. And they might be just given a bit of formula if they're going to the hairdressers or something. So it's just to 
you know, I, I think it's good to have those milliliters and that advice given specifically like that because plenty of women do both. And even when you you fill out information for research, they're like, did you exclusively breastfeed or not? And I always find that hard to answer because I was like, yes, they I breastfed them most of the time, but, you know, on Friday nights, if I wanted to go to bed early, they might have got formula then. So you don't know what bracket you fall into. So the guidance used to be if you're exclusively breastfeeding or if you're formula feeding. So it's actually great to have guidance that said, you know, specifically 300. Yeah. And I think things are moving away from labeling feeding as exclusive or not. I actually don't like that. I hate it. I passionately hate it. But that's another podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we can talk about that some other time. This is great. And generally, vitamin D, unless your baby has specific medical issues and that would be guided by your healthcare provider, would be the only supplement that is recommended for babies while they are breastfeeding or formula yeah. feeding over the first six months. And that brings me on something that I get asked all the time in my clinic is, when should I start weaning my baby onto solids? And I will start by a general statement, and then we can maybe have a chat about other nuances. Generally, you should not give your baby any solid foods before 17 weeks or four months of age. Actually introducing other foods before then can displace nutrients from your formula or your breast milk, so they may not absorb those nutrients as well as they do. Um, Kidneys tend to be not mature enough to handle the kind of food or the additional drinks that the baby might need. Or more importantly, their digestive system is not yet developed enough to cope with solid food. And that's an important point for a lot of mums, because sometimes you'll be doing it out of desperation going, they'll sleep better if I give them solids. And actually what might happen is if you're giving them solids solids before they're ready, that they'll sleep worse because their stomach will be in ribbons. Yeah. And there's also evidence demonstrating that it may increase the risk of obesity later on in life and may increase the risk of allergy. I wanted to briefly mention some signs that may be mistaken for a baby wanting solid foods. So chewing fists is not really a sign of baby being ready for solid foods. Waking up at night when they previously have been sleeping well, that can be a normal developmental phase in a in a baby's development over the first six months. Generally, we recommend that you shouldn't delay introducing solids beyond six months. And that's important. The reason why that is important is because beyond six months, the level of iron in breast milk may not be enough to meet the baby's needs because they need to start being supplemented with, with foods. And their energy needs can no longer be met by just milk and it can delay their chance to learn important skills and develop their milestones, including self-feeding. And introducing different textures can also stimulate development of muscles that are used in speech. So it's important that, that families do not delay beyond six months. Yeah, so I'd encourage people to watch the baby, not the clock. So a lot of people go, oh, there's six months tomorrow. I'm going to give them their first bit of food. But they might have been ready for a month, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And I, I I know that myself because even as a dietitian, you want to do everything right. And my son was definitely ready. So one of a big signs is simply being able to sit up and being able to hold your head. Um, and, you know, they do show interest in your food for yonks before they're ready to wean as well. And they put everything in their mouth, you know, not just food. So that, again, that's not a sign because just because they're eating your shoe doesn't mean that they're ready for food. But I think for safety reasons, it is a good idea to wait until they can sit up quite well and hold their head. Um, but I, I have to say one of the best things you can do 
before weaning is a first aid course. And I did a first aid course with Hands On Health and I found that really beneficial because, well, for one, my son had a floppy voice box, so he was just more prone to gagging. And I needed to know the difference between gagging and choking and what to do if it was a choke. Um, but it just gives you that level of comfort before you start weaning. Um, and then weaning in terms of the approach you take, I think people kind of put pressure on themselves again with the the labels. I hate people labeling nearly anything, but it's it's that labeling of, am I going to go down the puree route or the baby led weaning? Because a lot of the time you end up doing a bit of both. Yeah, absolutely. And that brings me on to what good options should parents begin with when they are beginning to introduce foods? Well, I was going to say green veg, but actually as soon as I say it, I feel like Pinocchio and my nose is growing because my kids, my son, his first, his first weaning experience wasn't the green veg. He actually robbed some of my cappuccino. Um, and my daughter's first experience with um, weaning wasn't green veg either. It was her niece gave her a bit of her ice cream. Um, so, you know, you can have all the plans, the best plans in the world, and it can just not go as you expect. But, you know, I, I see the the benefit of going for veg that might not be as acceptable to them as just, say, carrots, like which are deliciously sweet. But at the same time, you're not just trying to meet their nutrient requirements, which are, of course are very important, but it is them exploring food for the first time. And one of the most important roles I feel as a parent is simply developing your child's relationship with food. And it starts from that moment. Um, and they they just need to, you need to create an environment where they're not scared of trying. And uh, with weaning, you want it to be as calm as possible, as relaxed as possible, Take the pressures off yourself, take the rules and regulations that you have there and, you know, go a, a lot with good instinct, you know, and there's a lot of mothering instinct there. And if you're, there can be many reasons why someone might go puree and just stick with that completely. And it could be simply to do with, for example, the mum herself, like, or the dad himself, if they have issues with textures themselves or messiness, it, you know, and, and you're not just talking about, oh, I, I don't like mess, but just say um, they were diagnosed with autism, that it might really bother them and change the mood and change the atmosphere when feeding the child. So you have to realise just with breastfeeding, it's not just about the baby, it's, it's parent and baby. And, you know, it's the two of you com coming together uh, for a feeding experience. So um, don't have any rules and regulations for yourself. It has to be super soft. So whatever it is, it has to be able to crush it between your fingers easy enough. Um, you don't want huge portions in their little baby hands. So it can't really be um, greater than their fist um, in terms of size and really focus in on variety. But as soon as you can move up the textures, again, I feel like I let my son down and that I didn't move up the textures fast enough and he had issues then it was slower. Um, but maybe that's just mum guilt and it would have happened anyway. But um, move up the textures as soon as, um, as quickly as safe to do so. Um, and really when it comes to a meal, get them on balanced meals as soon as possible as well. And what you're aiming for is an energy rich food. So a carbohydrate, a bit of color, um, such as fruit or veg and um, an iron rich source. So an iron rich source at every single meal. And that can be simple 
changes. So for example, you know, red meat is an iron rich source, but so is the dark meat of poultry. So the breast of chicken nearly has no iron, but the legs and, and, and thighs and stuff have a little bit more. So my kids always get that bit of the that um, chicken, for example, just so that they're meat, uh, to help them meet their iron requirement requirements. And then I find a simple thing to do is simply go for uh, a breakfast cereal that's fortified in iron too. So the likes of a Weetabix or a Ready Breck or one of those that you can get really soft in the perfect texture, but is fortified with iron and just takes a bit of pressure off. But that said, if your baby is teeny tiny, so less than a 25th centile, which a thief knows I have no experience of, mine are barely chargeable and they're on the other end. But if they are less than 25th centile, they might need a small dose of an iron supplement, such as four milligrams. But do talk to your uh, GP about that or your public health nurse. Yeah. And, you know, it's it's amazing. The experience you bring is not from your dietitian hat as well, but you know, having experienced it as a parent as well, gives it a really lovely nuance because you're not being too prescriptive, which I think is very, very important. And you're emphasizing that initially the volumes of solids that the babies take are not important, regardless yeah. of whether you are a giant Orla Walsh baby <laughs> yeah. or a kind of smaller baby on the, yeah. on the lower end of the centile. The message to the parents initially is that do not be worried about the volume. A child is not going to starve themselves. Just make sure that you... Keep introducing the foods, let them explore it and try not to stress. I always find it hard to tell parents not to stress because me as a parent as well, all we do is stress about our yeah. children at various stages. So it's important to realize that if you keep introducing the foods, keep the variety and do it as Orla has described, that they will eventually end up having a kind of well-balanced diet going forward. What about things to sort of avoid? I often find that the ready-made meals sometimes can have a high degree of sugar and salt. And again, I loathe to say avoid them, but try and minimize their use because sometimes, you know, circumstances dictate that you don't have time to make your own food at home. They are not harmful, but they sometimes tend to have a higher amount of salts and sugars. Yeah. And so it's those pouches. And I suppose what would be better is if you kind of just say we're using them, you would put the pouch onto a spoon or put it into a bowl rather than just have the baby suck the food out of the pouch as well. Um, just to get them practicing that eating technique. The puree fruit ones tend to be high in free sugars and we're trying to minimize that in a child's uh, intake. So you're trying to do it as much as you can at home, but of course they they have their they have their place. And if your child's constipated as well, they they definitely have their place. And um, they also tend to be a bit weird in terms of the like the combinations, like, you know, pear with broccoli and peas and stuff. And, you know, you don't eat like that normally. And if you're trying to teach your child, you know, um, to eventually accept the meals that you generally cook in your household is which is the end game that they will just sit into the family meals a bit better you're not going to be serving up pear with peas and broccoli. So they can be weird in that sense. The meals can be quite high in vegetables and then low in nutrients because the meat in part isn't that, 
isn't that great. So in terms of nutritional composition, they're not always ideal as well. You know, the easiest thing is just to try and get whatever you're eating for breakfast or whatever you're eating for lunch or whatever you're eating for dinner and just adapt it. Uh, rather than I remember with again with my my son my firstborn I was making all these extraordinary meals I was exhausted from the amount of cooking I did for meals that he may not have eaten um with compared to my daughter where she just you know we just adapted every meal so she just all of a sudden was sitting at the dinner table and and eating with us and it was much less stressful and there was far less work for me to do and weaning tends to happen when women are going back to work as well. So like that's the exact opposite you need. You're going to be busier anyway. So you don't need to add more to your plate with some fancy muffin that there's going to end up on the ground anyway. Great. Well, listen, Orla, I could chat to you for ages and ages and ages, but I think we can stop that there. We've been chatting for about 45 minutes. Oh, have, have we? You yes. said 20 at the start. I know. I, I lied. I lied. <laughs> but um, time flies when you're having fun. Yeah. So... Thank you so much for joining us here. I'm sure parents have found this extremely useful. I know I have learned a lot and we really appreciate you coming on to our podcast. Thanks for having me. When choosing your antenatal care journey, you need a team that you can trust. Here at Evie, we offer personalised, multidisciplinary care in a state-of-the-art environment, ranging from consultant care, high-end scanning and prenatal testing to expert advice on diet, exercise and mental health. Our team of world-class consultants in obstetrics, gynaecology and paediatrics provide the highest standards of care for you and your baby. Contact us today on 01 293 3984 or visit our website at evie.ie for more information. Evie, a game changer in antenatal care. Wow, Afif, what an interview. Thank you so much, Orla. I only wish I knew about you back 12 years ago before I had Luke. If anyone is looking to make contact, you will follow Orla on Orla Walsh Nutrition on Instagram or on her website, Orla Walsh Nutrition. Thanks a million and see you next week. See you next week.